Welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley-Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and just ask us. The greater the length, while the greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by PROST, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, and the RS Health Penile Rehabilitation Program. PROST is a not-for-profit charity set up by myself in 2012 that aims to help men exercise during their experience with prostate cancer. If you want to know anything more about PROST, including our online service and USB product now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Hi, I'm Melissa Hadley-Barrett and I designed the Penile Rehabilitation Program to help men recover from prostate cancer. It's an online program built on decades worth of knowledge and experience and practice. It's the only one of its kind in the world and it actually works. So if you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer and want to get your penis working again as quickly as possible, and why wouldn't you, then visit penilerehabilitationprogram.com and you'll be off and running. And it only takes about 15 minutes a day. All the best with your recovery, which I promise will never be as bad as you think. November 11, 11am, 60 seconds, kids watch on the wall. In the pub, in the tab, in the cars, we remember... So, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. Today, we're with Dr. Ahmed Kazimi. And I really hope I said his name right. And I'm yeah, yeah, pretty close. You? Ahmed Kazmi. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Kazmi? Yeah. Um, he's a UK-trained GP, general practitioner and a dermatologist, and he, at the moment, calls Australia home, but he's waiting for Aussie recognition of his UK dermatology qualification. He also occasionally moonlights as a comedian, and I have seen Ahmed speak, and he is very funny indeed. So um, No pressure, no, no pressure. No <laughs> pressure. I'm not, I'm not expecting you to be funny today, but you, if you ever get the chance to see him at, um, perform at a Fringe Festival, then go. Thank you. <laughs> so... What sort of, today we're going to talk about penises penises and skin problems. All of our listeners only ever listen because they want to know about penises usually, (laughs) occasionally. (laughs) They they already knew what we were going to talk about today. Yeah, that's right. Occasionally we do talk about women's issues just because most, a lot of our listeners are married or in partnerships with women, so they like to know. Yes. Um, But most of the time it's just penis problems. Okay. So. What sort of penile issues do you most commonly see in your practice? So in my dermatology rooms, uh, there's a couple groups of sort of penile skin problems that present. Um, And probably the most common two are just normal penises and normal scrotums, (laughs) um, where there's a bit of anatomical variation and somebody wants reassurance that the lump or bump or color change on their penis is just normal. Um, So we could talk about that in a bit more detail. Um, And then the other big big group is this sort of low-grade, coming and going, little bit of irritation, slight redness, not really diagnosable by the GP, patients irritated by it, but they're aware it's not serious as well. That sort of lingering type, and we call that balanitis usually. So that's probably my biggest other group. And then... Not uncommonly, 
I also see penile involvement of just another skin disorder. So the patient happens to have psoriasis or happens to have eczema mm -hmm. and then they don't actually recognize that as being what is the rash on their penis, even though they may recognize it on other body parts. They yeah. haven't quite tied that together. Or sometimes it, that is the only manifestation of their um, their dermatosis. Yes, It's only manifest in their genitals, which is another reason why they can't put two and two together. Sure. And many GPs, yeah, a lot of other doctors who don't see skin regularly may struggle to diagnose that. And then lastly, the, probably the group I see most infrequently are sexually transmitted infections or um, sort of skin disorders or lumps and bumps specifically of the penis and the penis alone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So those are the sort of vague groups. Sure. That so my let's path. first of all talk about, because I see a lot of this as well, like men who come in that think they've got something. Yep like terrible going on 100%. and it's just a pearly papule exactly. or a frill yep. or something like that and it'll be and their GP has told them that they've got warts and they need to come in and then we have a look and go oh no that's kind of normal yes so tell Definitely. us about that yeah I do feel a bit sorry for guys um so I want to caveat this by saying you know mm, there there's a lot of well looked after, lovely functioning, clean penises out there. Yes. And I don't want to patronize anybody by telling <laughs> them how to look after their skin and how to wash. And But I do think it sort of gets missed a bit, like mm. generally in our growing up in school, in like the talk that your parents give you. I don't think that talk really happens for a lot of people. And so they're, they end up sometimes in adulthood with a few blanks or yeah. like a few um, holes in their vision mm -hmm. and so this is like you were saying so some really commonly occurring anatomical variations are mistaken for pathology and one mm -hmm. of the most common ones are pearly papules of the penis mm -hmm. um, or, or referred to as PPPs <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they are just little overgrowths of skin that often nest together as small tiny projections mm -hmm. in the part of the glands where it transitions from the glands onto the shaft which we call the corona or the rim of the top of the penis. Yeah. Um, and because they can look slightly like small, tiny projections, they can be mistaken for genital warts. Um, but they're not contagious, they're not dangerous, they won't have any outcome on your health, on your sexual health, on your fertility. Um, and many uh, men, when I explain that to them, are reassured enough that they're happy to go on their merry way. Mm -hmm. And some men, are, although reassured that they're benign in nature, um, still find them cosmetically displeasing or yeah. they find them um, psychosexually distressing, yeah. um, which I also respect. And then if they wish to seek out treatment, there are a few things we can do of which CO2 ablative laser is probably the easiest. Okay. But given that it's so common, I just don't understand how it is that both for laymen, um, lay people and for healthcare professionals who aren't dermatologists or GUM consultants or urologies, how, how it just didn't get out there that this is mm. a... How it's so often misdiagnosed for something, I, I find surprising. I'd be really interested to know, actually, did you find that as much when you worked in the UK? Just yes. Oh, did you? Yeah, 100%. Okay, because yeah, yeah. I've always had a theory, which is obviously wrong then, but I've always thought that because so many Australian men are circumcised, not so yep. much anymore, but yes. 20 years ago they yep. all were, um, that like we didn't, our, like my parents wouldn't have spoken to my brothers who... Yes, yes. circumcised about yep. pulling your foreskin back and having a look what's underneath and all of those things. And then yes. when they become adults and they're like, oh, what's that? You know, yep. rather than 
like we're not. We're, I think we're kind of missing in our one generation of education because we haven't been. But maybe that yeah, isn't no, affecting. I'm it. not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if it is generational because I don't know what the comparative rates of circumcision are. Mm-hmm. But um, I imagine it's either similar or even lower for the UK. Yeah, and I imagine America's problem hu- probably is higher. Yeah. Um. So I'm not sure that that's necessarily the. So Americans and Australians. Um, have a lot more circumcision, you know, yep. like that's definitely reduced over the last 20 years. But, yep. you know, early on, when I see most men in their 50s or 60s that are from the UK, yes. they're not circumcised. Yep. Most Australian men at that age are circumcised, yeah. which yeah. is interesting. Um, I was going to talk a little bit about circumcision later, but sure. since we're on the topic now, mm. I do think it's also important to mention that, you know, although penises have a lot in common, yeah, they vary significantly from person to person too. And there is a big gap between, I see in the, in clinic between presentations in circumcised men and uncircumcised men Mm. um, in that almost, unfortunately, I would say seven, eight or nine out of 10 consults for sort of itchy, sore, uh, irritated um, penis or balanitis is almost always in an uncircumcised man. Um, So that's not a PR for circumcision. And, you know, we should Mm. be able to manage it in most cases without needing to circumcise. Mm -hmm. But if you're out there listening to this and you are circumcised and you're wondering why you've never had a itchy or sore or why you've <laughs> never had balanitis that's probably why um, it yeah. is hugely protective because it just creates an environment on the tip of the penis that isn't wet all the time that isn't moist all the time that doesn't trap or guard or keep a hold mm. of things and the the long-term consequence of that is just the skin changes in nature it becomes firmer harder the bacteria and um, yeast that grow in it are different and so one of the sort of uh, benefits then or the s- happy side effects of having been circumcised is that a, a lot of these issues are, are so much lower um, yeah. in occurrence in circumcised men. And then does that mean that you see more men with these pearly papules in uncircumcised or circumcised or is there no correlation with that? Yeah, no, I can't say that there is much of a correlation. There may be one that exists statistically, but no. in my clinical practice, I haven't seen, I've seen it in both, yeah, in both groups. Yeah. Um, and so let's say a guy's out there and he has got a pearly papule. Yep. And he doesn't like the look of it and he just wants it off. He know he's reassured that it's nothing sinister. Yes. But he just wants it off. Like yep. what what would the procedure be for that? So the first thing I do is actually some gentle screening questions. Um, because you know, I, I find often in young um adults, young men, young women, if they come presenting wishing something uh cosmetic, I like to just gently put my feeders out to see if this is this really a phenomena that's just attached to this one lesion mm-hmm. or actually is this distress at this lesion a manifestation of something else? Yeah, okay. Because if the patient does have anxiety or depression or body dysmorphic disorder or there are other issues, all that I'm going to do once I've treated it is just allow for that to be misplaced onto something else. Yeah. Then they'll come and see their other doctor about their rosacea or about their... So I will gently ask some screening questions like, so what's happening for you at home? Are there any stresses going on? How would you describe your mental health? How do you, And I even explain outright my line of questioning. Mm-hmm. I say, and do you think that, you know, because the reason I'm asking this is I'm wondering if once we treat this, if that will resolve this, this worry for you. Um, and then I'm probably still going to treat them even if I do think they've got concomitant depression yeah. or anxiety, but, but I'm probably going to signpost them or make some investment in also trying to, bring their attention to what I think else might need addressing. Yeah, that's um, great. And that is that is quite common in that age group where something becomes a manifestation of some other upset mm. um, or worry and you can miss, the, miss that moment of putting them on a different trajectory if you just see it as just the... 
Yeah, and then that they might penile lesion alone. Yeah, the next thing might be that they're worried about that their middle toe is longer than their other toe exactly. or something like exactly, that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, great. So it's preventing so further. Yeah. And further. So that's the very first thing I do, um, and then I also just take that moment to briefly ask generally if how their um, penile functioning is, how their sex life is, because again, if there is significant problem, it's probably not related to their pearly papule. No. Um, and if it is, then I, I think it probably needs a more holistic. Uh, management involvement of other people as well as just the dermatologist yeah um and then i'll uh, describe what it will involve so i say um we'd usually use a laser to burn this off mm -hmm. um it's unlikely you'll get full resolution in just one sitting we'll have to do a few occurrences a few a few treatments it's done with um anesthetic cream that you'll come to the clinic and we'll apply an hour before the treatment or you can do so at home mm -hmm. um, most guys will do that after the first treatment because then they know what to expect yeah um and then i say it's just like a laser beam and i fire it at the lesions and we burn off we actually vaporize the lesion and some of the underlying tissue mm -hmm. um, it's quite superficial which is why it needs a few goes um, yeah. and then you'll be sore for a couple of days you might be out of action sexually for a couple of days um, but usually it's very well tolerated and has actually very good um, success and good cosmetic outcome and is there any pain at the time uh, no, not if you've done your um, anesthetic cream well. Okay. Uh, it, it literally just feels like a small tapping or pressure. Mm -hmm. Most men I do it on are happily chatting away, talking about things. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really have people wince or, or grimace. Great. No. Okay. And so then if they did have pain later on when they're at home, could they reapply that cream that to help with the pain? Yeah. So there's over-the-counter ones that are less strong than the one that we use in clinic. Mm -hmm. um, so those are available and people can apply those, like numit creams and instilla gels, those sort of thing. But oral analgesia is usually adequate so panadol nurofen those type of drugs and just you know keeping the area cool and dry and mm. especially if they do what they're told uh, some mm. naughty guys go straight back to sex and then they yeah. come in there and tell me it's sore and i'm like i, war <laughs> I warned you i don't know what <laughs> you were expecting to happen so yeah so usually it's pretty they were probably so excited they had a prettier uh, penis uh, yeah. they just wanted to get out and I use it i think so yeah <laughs> test drive the car immediately <laughs> before uh, yeah before it was ready yeah fair enough um so so then that brings us on to the next kind of most common that it sounds like. Yeah. Is Before we do that, yes, there's one other really common Go. lesion, and yeah. that's called a four-disc spot or four-disc granule. Oh, and I've that, never heard of that. Yeah, that often ends up in dermatology rooms as well. Oh. So these are small, sebaceous glands, so little oil-producing cells mm -hmm. that are, when we're being made and um, we're being given all our bits and pieces, they end up in tissues where they don't really belong. Okay. So you might get a tiny ectopic focus of sebaceous oil-producing cells uh, on the inside of the lip okay. or on the inside of the cheek yep. or on the shaft of the penis or on the labia minora. Mm -hmm. And they present as tiny white or yellow bumps. Mm -hmm. But instead of being those sort of tiny wart-like, finger-like projections just around the coroner, mm -hmm. you'll more often see them on the shaft of the penis or on the scrotum. And they look like tiny, tiny white bumps. Or and, yeah. and because they're so smooth, and usually because they've been so long, they're so long, these aren't mistaken for um, warts very often. Mm -hmm. But people aren't really aware of what they are, and they don't like them cosmetically, and so they'll often end up in my rooms. And I've seen a lot of those, and I always just say, oh, they're just normal, don't worry about it. But I didn't yeah. know what they're called. So what are they called again? F-O-R-D-Y-C-E. Okay. four disc granules or four disc spots and that's what they are they're tiny ectopic sebaceous glands mm -hmm. and again we would really really try and encourage patients to leave them alone to yeah. not give them any second thought now that they do know what they are and they are associated with less psychological and psychosexual burden than um than pearly papules i find yeah especially because if you've got quite um keratinized or quite thick or horny um 
pearly papules. You don't mean yeah. he doesn't mean anyone listening. Yeah. He doesn't mean horny <laughs> as in horny. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like a horn. Yeah, he, he means like tough. Yeah. So those ones can be palpable, as in you can close your eyes and feel them, whereas yeah. you can't really generally no. feel Freudian spots, which is why I think also they cause less um, uh, upset or yeah. less presentation, less, less desire to treat them. But mm. if someone really wants to, we would do it in a similar way with an ablative technique like a CO2 laser. Um, yeah. But um, most people just are, are happy with that explanation. What about, um, sorry, just a yes, little please. bit left, but senile warts or yes. seborrheic keratoses. Yes. I recently had a patient who had two tiny ones on his um, testicles, on his scrotum, mm-hmm. and um, really concerned about them and yep. was wondering whether or not, you know, it might have been like, you know, he was... Um, in his 70s and he's like, yes. God, did I get warts or something when I was younger and they've just appeared now? And I was like, no, no, they're these, I call them senile warts. Yes. But is that common in that area? Uh, so it's not so common on the penis. Mm-hmm. And if you did develop one, I probably would see a dermatologist. Mm-hmm. But in the pubic area per se, like over the pub- the mons pubis or the pubic bone, in the folds between the, um, in the inguinal folds, the, f- the folds between the legs and the pubic area, they're super, super common. Yeah. Um, and I don't call them senile warts for this reason. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. people mistake them to be actual viral warts. Yes, good so, point. But the difficulty is, at least senile wart has some meaning to people who aren't medical, whereas the modern current name is seborrheic keratosis, yes. which I think people struggle with. And there's no reference point there. It doesn't actually mean anything. No. So I tend to call them age barnacles because yeah. at least people realize that a barnacle isn't, it can't really be a barnacle. Yeah. And then I describe them as saying, as we get older, everything fails us. Mm. And it's the same in our skin, that small bits of skin get the components of skin wrong. And mm-hmm. they just end up with a small little island of skin that's producing too much cement. Yep. And so that's what keratin is. And then you get a little mound of keratin on top of the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a problem of proportions. And then yep. I also reassure them that there is no malignant potential. There is zero chance of this turning to cancer. So whilst it might be cosmetically displeasing, I can reassure you that it's no harm to your health. Right. Um, and then I find older patients are usually um, acceptable of that. Yes. Um, and then younger patients, not unreasonably. No, I, I don't attach any value judgment. I know we Four days a week in a dermatology clinic and one day a week in a, in a cosmetic clinic. So I'm it's <laughs> o- I'm okay if people want to. Yeah. yeah and, and they're pretty easy to treat. We either scrape them off yeah. or we use a special heated diode to um, burn them off. Yeah. So if you didn't want them or liquid nitrogen as well um, is another option yeah, if you didn't want them on. But I would say if you have one on your penis, that's quite unusual. Mm-hmm. And I would get that um, reviewed to make sure it's nothing else. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Yeah, because... um. This gentleman actually sent me a photo because he was quite worried about it. And yep. I was like, oh, I'm sure that's one of these. I have another patient who calls them, what does he call them? He calls them his nutty old man lumps. <laughs> that's a good description, <laughs> actually. I think cute. That's pretty fair. Yeah. 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 The, the place you find the most is actually the torso yeah. and the sides of the face. That's yep. the classic distribution. And they're not sun related either, which is what I reassure people of because mm. they think that they've done something wrong or they're sun damaged. Yeah, and I say no, it's genetic and age. Yeah, yeah. I uh, when I worked in general practice, I used to always see them on people's backs. Yes, exactly. And yeah. unfortunately, when I turned about forty, I started growing one in the middle of my forehead and was oh, like, boo. "Oh no!" So yeah. that's okay. I just freeze it off with a yeah. bit of ice every now and then. Yeah, but yeah. Nice. Um, it is. It's. It's. It was one of those things where I thought, "Oh no, I've got crazy lumps." Yeah. So yeah. So, yeah, so that's the <laughs> nothing really wrong, nothing serious group of people, which are quite satisfying for me because I can do a spot diagnosis spot reassurance, and yeah. then any subsequent treatment is purely cosmetic. Mm. So that's quite a nice group. 
Perfect. And so the next most common. Yes, that's the more complex group. Mm -hmm. so that's the balanitis group. Yes. I.e. inflammation of the head of the penis or the glands of the penis. Yeah. And like I said, this group is made up almost entirely of uncircumcised men. Right. And um, it's sort of a descriptive term rather than a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I, I would think about it in those terms, okay. just meaning an inflamed. It's a bit like saying somebody's jaundiced, like you're not clever for pointing out that they're yellow. <laughs> then the nuance comes in. Well, why are they yellow? Uh, is it um, alcoholic hepatitis? Is it viral hepatitis? Is it um, a, a tumor? Is it? And it's a bit the same with balanitis. It, it doesn't take that much nuance or skill to say, OK, well, you've got an intimately red, slightly irritated head of your glands penis it's balanitis in the descriptive sense yeah. but why that's happening mm -hmm. is usually a bit more nuanced mm -hmm. and my general experience has been is it it is almost always multi-etiology it's okay. very rarely just one thing so in layman's terms explain what that means to us. yeah listeners. so um i think that men come with the hope that i'll tell them it's one thing and if they change that one thing all the symptoms will disappear. Mm -hmm. And in real life, unfortunately, life isn't so kind as to do that. Mm -hmm. So then I have to discuss many things. Yes, okay. Um, and so one of the most common triggers um, for this irritated, inflamed glands of the penis that we call balanitis um, is usually an irritant phenomena. Mm -hmm. And the irritant phenomena happens because the skin there is exposed to chemicals that it shouldn't be or chemicals for a long enough period that it ends up breaking down the barrier of the skin. Okay. And the most common ones in uncircumcised men are usually urine droplets okay. and smegma, which is just a mixture of oil, skin oil and sloughed off skin cells. Which is living under the foreskin. Exactly. And yeah. so this is why uncircumcised men circumnavigate this because there is no foreskin to trap all of this. Yes. Um, so one one big contributing factor is this irritant phenomena. So a little bit of droplets of urine getting trapped there, a little bit of dead skin cell getting trapped there, a bit of sun, um, skin oil getting trapped there. And then they end up causing this sort of low-grade inflammatory response where the body's trying to say, hang on a minute, this shouldn't be there. They might also damage, disrupt, or dissolve the, um, the top layer of the skin as well, okay. which means things can get access to deeper tissues that they shouldn't do, deeper, deeper parts of the, the skin. Um, so that's one one air, uh, sort of on this multi-etiology. And would soap yep. be considered in those irritants? 100%, yep. yeah. So these are sort of your endogenous or your own things from your own body that are causing it. But then there's exogenous irritants too. Mm -hmm. And you quite you hit the nail on the head. Um, soaps um, are one of the biggest groups. And um, I think people also sometimes struggle to realize that, you know, the skin um, of our genitals isn't actually the same, especially if you're uncircumcised mm. it is just not the same as the rest of our body mm. and therefore what it can tolerate is very different so you may well be able to tolerate certain chemicals neat soaps or elsewhere on your body on the palms of yeah. your hands which might be 50 100 times thicker than mm. the skin on your penis then yeah. then your the skin on your penis will be able to tolerate so it's a bit like i said at the beginning where i feel like somehow a few lessons got skipped somewhere yeah. in growing up and that's one of them so then i i have a little uh explanation about how actually to wash them mm -hmm. um, or what products might be safer or more useful or less irritating and i'll tell you more about that in a minute but Great. i'll just go through all the different bits so yeah, yeah so so um what's the word it's a it's like a double-edged sword where if someone isn't washing frequently enough mm -hmm. they'll get an accumulation of this urine and smegma that's quite harmful to the skin mm -hmm. and if they're really overzealous with their hygiene 
and there's always soap going down there and the soap isn't mm-hmm. always being washed away, they're also stripping away their oil and their natural barriers and, the, and causing inflammation there. Yeah. So what we want is that lovely middle point where we're cleaning enough that we're getting rid of all the bad stuff, but mm-hmm. not over cleaning that we're still leaving, this, leaving the skin with some of its natural oils and its natural defenses in place. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, so um, pee, urine, smegma, soaps, then friction as well is a, another common irritant. Um, yeah. uh, uh, it never ceases to surprise me where somebody might say, I've got a new girlfriend, yeah. um, uh, and then they might have had sex 20 times in a week, and now their penis is a bit sore. Yeah. But they haven't put two and two together that if you went from having like masturbating once a week to mm-hmm. twen- sex 20 times, or that that may just... You know, if you rubbed any part of your oh, body really? enough times for long enough, it's going to be sore, let alone your poor little glands penis. Yeah. Which well, we know when, you know, you get a cold and you use a tissue 20 times a day. Pr- that is the, exactly. That's your nose the, is sore. Exactly. And it can mm. even cause crusting, exactly. peeling, redness. Mm-hmm. So then um, that's another common uh, trigger for um, balanitis. And then something that isn't um, directly related to hygiene but a really, really common cause for this group of this sort of intermittent, low-grade, annoying, coming-and-going balanitis are overgrowth of yeasts mm. in that area. And this is because, again, it's just moisture, tra- moisture trapping. Yeah. So even if there's optimal hygiene, that's not going to change the fact that it is a moist environment there if the foreskin is, is in situ, in place. Um, and so the most common yeasts that do that are a yeast called Malassezia furfur, which is also the yeast that gives us common dandruff of okay. the of the head and also causes a common inflammatory disorder of the skin called seborrheic dermatitis mm-hmm. where men often describe dandruff in their eyebrows, their beard, in the creases around their nose and that's because those are oil, also oil-rich, moisture-rich mm. areas. Yep. Um, hair often traps water as well as oil and so it just it's it's a thriving environment for the for the yeast to overgrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one is Candida albicans, which traditionally is associated, which we know of because of thrush. Yeah. Um, but that can also overgrow. So those are sort of the main, and then I talk about all of these. And then when we talk about the, the trajectory and the treatment, I also keep referencing these groups, you know, about irritants, about um, hygiene, about um, uh, yeasts. Um, and then I, I usually find the penny drops and they realize that, you know, if there's, if it recurs, why and what the treatment measures are. So that's the approach I take. So, you know, if you had some sort of allergic response, then it's not uncommon, is it, for you then to get a secondary infection of the of one of the of the um, fungal type candida or, yeah. or one of those yeasty infections, is exactly. it? So then you can have both at the same time. 100%. So you can even have overlapping penile dermatoses. It, it doesn't always have to just be one pathology. So even though the causes are multifactorial, you mm. might even have more than one actual diagnosis yeah, uh, okay. in place at one point. There's no reason why you couldn't have psoriasis and balanitis because of friction and smegma and do you see what yes, I mean? Yeah, exactly. And exactly like you've said, unfortunately, these things can often feed each other. Mm. So somebody with eczema, um, so an overactive immune system in the skin that we call atopic dermatitis. Um, they also, so that's part of what's happening in eczema. The other part is that their skin barrier is genetically not intact. So mm-hmm. small little holes where water evaporates off quicker than it should. Yep. So you end up with dry skin. Okay. Stuff gets in that shouldn't get in. So dust, dirt, pollen. So people also end up sensitized to things more mm. quickly. And so you end up with this poor cohort of patients where... Um, they're itchy because they've got a broken skin barrier. They're red and sore because their immune system's overactive. 
that's also then created an opening to become sensitized to other mm -hmm. agents. So now they're much more likely to actually develop an allergic contact dermatitis to their soap or fragrance or perfume. or mm -hmm. And then that further perpetuates their itch or modifies, because then it's not pure eczema now. Mm -hmm. It's eczema plus an allergic contact dermatitis. Yeah. And so we don't we see something not uncommon with um, penile skin as well, in that if you carry the genes for eczema or psoriasis, and then you end up with a bit of yeast overgrowth yeah. or trauma or surgery in the area, any insult to the skin or any inflammation to the skin, and you carry the genes for those skin disorders, they may become manifest in that skin. Ah, okay. So yeah. you might have had the gene all along, never ever sh showed any symptoms, and then something happens to your penis tissue. Yep. And then it just yeah, and it can happen with any tissue. So some mm. women, the first time they ever know they got psoriasis is from their C-section scar. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And same like uh, somebody might have an overgrowth of yeast in their scalp, mm -hmm. and we would normally call that seborrheic dermatitis, yeah. or a little bit on their penis, mm -hmm. and we would call that seborrheic balanitis. Mm -hmm. But they carry the psoriasis genes. And so the scale and the anger and the inflammation is just totally disproportionate to what we'd usually see. Ah. And then we actually say you've got a crossover between psoriasis and seborrheic dermatitis. And then we call right. that SIBO psoriasis because we like to name everything. Everything. Everything, yeah, in dermatology. But yeah. The I think the saddest young man I'd ever seen with a problem like this, like a skin condition on his penis, was I saw him when he was about 21 and he'd obviously developed this issue at about 15. Yep. And... Um, he thought that it was because he'd been masturbating too much oh, or yeah. that he'd caught an STI off a toilet. Yeah. So by the time I met him, he'd never had a sexual encounter because he was convinced yes. that he had this terrible problem. Yeah. And the only reason he ever came in in the end was because he was in so much pain when he had nocturnal erections because the scarring was so bad. Yeah. And he was just so relieved yeah. when I was like, this is nothing to do with any of that. 100%. And I, I that not to such an extent... But I often see that sigh of relief mm. when I say to the people, oh, no, this is genetic. Oh, no, this is from friction. Oh, no, this is just an overgrowth of um, malassezia. Oh, no, this is. Um, and then that sort of feeling like, ah, so I didn't do anything wrong and I can't give it to anybody and I can't. Which is one of the reasons I feel sad that people often leave it so long to, yeah. to get it reviewed. But, but it's such a sh like I think people feel shame when it's anything to do with their genitals that they might yeah. not feel if it's on their eyelid or yeah. Okay, I do find that a bit funny though because I have to say my experience of living in Australia and I'm speaking now work-wise, not recreationally, <laughs> is that Australian men are generally not that shy about their penis. No, because I will be in clinic. Um, I'll be like, hello, sir. I'm Dr. Kazmi. How can I help you? <laughs> and he hasn't even introduced himself. We haven't built any rapport. And he is already unzipping his pants. And then I'm like, okay, slow down a little. <laughs> I will get to your penis. Just tell me a little bit. And he's like, no, no, I'll show you. I'll show you, doctor. <laughs> so I'm like, I'll draw the curtain. And it's like to examine their back or something. And then yeah. they're butt naked. <laughs> so, And then I'm like, why did you take off all your clothes? And he was like, oh, I thought you wanted to. And I, was like, I thought you said it was on your back. And he was like, it is. And I was like, okay, well, you probably could have left your underwear on. So um, I can't reconcile this. So you're on the one hand, generally, and I definitely find Australian men are more like sort of disinhibited, happy to be examined. Yeah. Especially when they get to adulthood. Mm. Then say I had patient then English men. Really? But um, but still there are some where they have really dragged their heels for years to come yeah. to see the doctor. Because but this is when I think maybe more than embarrassment or shame, maybe it's this 
worry that it is something else uh, cancerous or something infective yeah, yeah. Maybe I, that's I reckon the average Aussie bloke by the time he gets himself to the doctor yeah. he's like I just want to get over and done with him he's going to get my gear off and get it out he's probably psyched himself probably, up all day probably he knows now or <laughs> never now or never yeah he's maybe got maybe. in the door and yeah. he's like okay I'm just going to show it yeah yeah <laughs> yeah no I can imagine that so yeah but that's this group of sort of uh, intermittent, which is the biggest group. And I imagine there's a lot of people listening to this right mm. now who also fall into that category. Yeah. And they're often um, serially reassured by other doctors saying, well, it's nothing serious, it's nothing serious, which may give them a small degree of, dis- a small degree of comfort, but doesn't really address their issue and still leaves them to with live with it, exactly. which is what I've seen. And so most guys, when they come to consult me, leave feeling pretty um, positive and reassured even though I'm really honest with them and I say to them, I say, there's good news, good news, bad news. What would you like? Mm. And they're like, oh, just tell me everything, doctor. And I say, okay, so I know what's wrong with you. There's loads that we can do to improve it, but I can't cure you. Because then I explain to them that, you know, I can't cure yeast is ubiquitous. Yeast lives on all of us. I can't Mm. cure that. Also, I can't eradicate friction because you are going to masturbate and or have sex in your life. I can't eradicate. Do you see what I mean? So, So it's all about just trying to find a regime that gets you as symptom-free as possible for as long as possible yeah. and what you do when you get a relapse. Um, yeah. And that forms the sort of the next discussion that we have with them. So you're, what would you normally say? Say someone comes in and it started off as some sort of atopic dermatitis and yep. then they have a secondary yeast infection. Because, I mean, and I'm definitely not a dermatologist, yep. but my understanding is that like the treatment for these things, the first line is pretty much the same for most of them, but it's just a mixture of things, isn't it? Yeah. So again, just in the same way that the um, causes are multifactorial, mm-hmm. I, I actually literally write down for them. I say your treatment is also going to be multifactorial. Mm-hmm. And then this is where sometimes I worry and I feel like I might be a bit patronizing or I worry that I'm literally teaching a man how to wash his penis. But then I also think that actually it is a really important part of the management of this. Mm. And obviously it's not happened correctly so far. So let me use this moment. So I'll talk about some quite medical things, but then also some quite straightforward things. And when you sort of shit sandwich it like that i don't think anyone gets <laughs> gets offended or gets so mm. I, I literally go through each other thing so i and I, that's why i explain the problems because then it forms the next st- um it gives me the segue to discuss their treatment yeah so i say okay so about the um the catching like the trapping of urine yeah so then i say i would recommend when you're urinating you just retract the foreskin enough that the urine exits without touching the rest of the penis okay and um that might be that you have to fully retract or might be that it's enough just to expose the tip of the urethra which is called the urethromiatus then also again it sounds like common sense but make sure that you're fully finished shake a few times then protract the foreskin back over the front over the top and then you will have just reduced by 95 percent how much urine might be trapped there and it's such a simple and and then i say i know everyone's in a rush everyone's like quick you want to but really it's worth taking the time to do that Mm. and then i also explained to i said you know babies get nappy rash because they're in an if they're in a nappy too long the urine breaks down it turns into ammonia it's inflammatory it's irritating and that's sort of what's happening to the tip of your penis yeah so that's that's the first thing i tell them then i tell them obviously about the friction just you know use lubricant um uh, etc and for most people that want to make sure that their foreskin is in their neutral position when they put a condom on for example or yeah. so those kind of general measures to try and and don't reduce. have sex 20 times a week exactly or you <laughs> can but just you know you gotta you gotta accept the consequences <laughs> yeah um so that's what i talk about for those kind of things and then with the washing which is a big one 
because it ticks the bo- box both of avoiding irritant fragrances and soaps yeah. and also of getting rid of smegma um, correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I say to them that I want you to go soap-free mm-hmm. and fragrance-free. And there's loads of um, products available on the market, depending on what country you are. Um, so Dermis do a really nice soap-free wash. QV do a lovely soap-free wash. Aveeno do a lovely soap-free wash. And I would actually look for the word soap-free fragrance-free because some, there's this gimmick that they'll say gentle or for babies mm-hmm. and it will still have the same soap content. Or the other thing so they have on all these, a lot of these creams now, which makes me laugh, is gluten-free. Yeah. Now, really, why does a cream need yes. to be gluten-free? Yeah. So yeah. it's not going to yeah benefit. So then I say that that's what you do. Um, so r- fully retract the foreskin mm-hmm. in order to really clean around it. Um, use a small, a tiny amount of neat um, soap-free wash mm-hmm. or just the suds, depending on how irritated they are. Mm-hmm. And make a fir- few circular motions, gently massage around the corona because that's where often they'll get some buildup of segma there. So that little bridge where the glands turns into the shaft. Yep. Um, and then gentle warm water and make sure all the suds are gone. Yep. And then I tell them to make sure it's fully dried by tapping, um, dabbing dry with the towel before the foreskin is replaced to its original position. And again, then I'm trying to reduce moisture, reduce irritation from soaps and fragrances, and um, ensure that there's not an accumulation of any skin oil or dead cells there, which I find most guys find easier to hear than the word smegma. (laughs) So I try not to say that too much because I find like smegma has been... um, you know, there's like it stigma. Has negative yeah, stigma. Attached. So I just stigma, say yeah. dead skin cells and oil, even though really that's what it is. Yeah. So yeah, so we address the the urination, we address then their their washing habit, we talk a little bit about friction and sex. And then for the yeasty element, mm-hmm. which is definitely the biggest group. And it's worth mentioning here that balanitis can sometimes be caused by bacteria as well mm-hmm. or viruses, which is why if you have one that's just not going away or bad, it is worth seeing a doctor. Yeah. But the majority are going to be this yeasty group mm-hmm. where the yeast lives on us anyways. That's another important thing to mention. I reassure them it's not sexually transmitted. Mm-hmm. It's not sexually acquired. They live on us anyways. It's just they happen to overgrow in moist areas. Yeah. And then if for whatever reason you had a have a predisposition towards dry or sensitive skin or the count is high enough, then it ends up creating this actual inflammation in the skin. Yeah. Um, and so I tell them that if we rob the yeast of that moisture, mm-hmm. most of the time that deals with the issue. Mm-hmm. So if there's no food around for it, so just doing the above measures. But some guys do need to add in a little bit of um, antifungal or anti-yeast shampoo. Yeah. And I, I say never put the neat, neat actual straight out the bottle product on the penis. Okay. Um, I And when I examine them, I always examine everywhere else, mm. including the scalp. And that always confuses men. But because that's where I'm looking for evidence of yeast overgrowth. And if they've got sort of a greasy, scaly, sort of yellow sca- scale on the scalp, I know they're yeast overgrowers. Ah, or if I can okay. see flakes in their eyebrows or flakes in their beard or little red patches around there. Yep. So then I say to them, massage it into your um, scalp, massage it into your beard. And then with the soap suds, a little bit in your underarms, your groin. And then you can even apply some directly onto the penis. You wait for a few minutes. I say, just do something else. Brush your teeth or groom and then rinse it off and really make sure it's all rinsed off and when you're when the disease is active and the penis is sore you probably need to do that about twice a week yeah and then you may only need to do it once a week once every 10 days or once a fortnight long term to stop it coming back mm-hmm. and m- the majority of men in this group with those kind of measures that i've discussed with that little regime yeah. usually end up with really happy functional 
Um, foreskins. Foreskins, yeah, <laughs> and, and glands penises, yeah. So just tell me then, what sort of shampoo, when you say like anti-dandruff? So like that would be something, there's loads of different yeah. ones, but um, it would be something either with a direct antifungal drug in it. So mm -hmm. these are drugs called like ketoconazole. Mm -hmm. And the most common one that's sold uh, in that is um, Nizoral yes. or Selsun. Yep. Um, but Selenium also does it, and that's what's in Head and Shoulders. Okay. So uh, all of those anti-dandruff shampoos will, um, will work, and that, that will be their usual active ingredient. Okay, yeah. great. Um, and then I also, sometimes I have to prescribe topical medication for them. And these are even available over the counter from the chemist. And they're often a combination of an antifungal. Mm. So something you'd often use for athlete's foot or thrush. So they'll often have like a picture of a foot or a picture of a woman. Yep. And then I reassure them that I haven't prescribed them the wrong drug. <laughs> um, plus or minus a very mild topical steroid, which is a anti-inflammatory. Yeah. So we're both simultaneously killing the bug that's responsible. Um, even though I can't eradicate it because mm -hmm. it will reaccumulate. But like you were saying, if we manage to get everything good down there, back to status quo, and then from that point forward, we do the other measures I mentioned, mm. it often um, keeps them clear. So that's what the anti-yeast or antifungal component does. And the steroid just helps repair that skin barrier, calm down all those overactive, angry white cells and reduce the itch. Mm. Great. And then is it very often that you would ever have to prescribe an oral medication if someone is like, you know, has a lot of yeast, you yes. know, like on their skin and in yeah. their hair and everywhere? So it's not very often, but it's, it's definitely done. And some um, men, definitely with the best will in the world, they're very compliant. They do all of the above measures. They're using the shampoo twice a week. They're drying and I still can't bring it under control. So we wouldn't treat somebody with an antifungal indefinitely for this, mm -hmm. but we have a couple of other options. So we may try to what's called pulse them to bring down their yeast burden. So I might give them an antifungal every day for seven to 10 days, maybe even two weeks, mm -hmm. and then perhaps once a month for the next six months. And then that combined with their lifestyle measures might be enough to put them on a good trajectory where we really got rid of it. Yeah. And the other thing is if I can't bring down their yeast to a great enough volume, I accept that. And then I just treat the balanitis. And because you can't treat with um, for short periods, Short to medium periods, topical steroids are totally safe, even in the genital area. Mm. But you do run into problems if you're going to be using them long term, like forever. Yeah. So then we would give them a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory cream. So the most common group are, for example, calcineuron inhibitors. Mm -hmm. These are called tacrolimus, pimicrolimus. And we might have that compounded, so made up specially with a little bit of antifungal as well. Yeah. And then, then that worry of how long they've got to treat for is negated it's it's a moot point now yeah. because i know that even if they used it till the cows come home i'm not going to cause them any harm but most people don't need to they'll probably just need to do it twice a day for some weeks then once a day for some weeks then alternate days for some weeks and then they everyone will find what's the minimum they can get away with using their creams and their shampoos without their disease relapsing yeah and so some men out there unfortunately do have to use the antifungal anti-shampoo every day or it just yeah, keeps coming okay. back or they have to use the cream once a week to stop it coming back or a combination thereof and is there any um value in like dietary changes you know because some you know if you eat a lot of sugar then it would probably stimulate yeah the, the fungal growth that's a really valid point and what i say to them so the quick answer is yes diet makes a difference but the longer answer is that, unfortunately, it's not that kind of yeast that we're ingesting. So I explain that to patients like the yeast in beer or the yeast in bread. It's not that kind of mm. yeast. So I reassure them of that, that what the physically the yeast that they're eating isn't going to determine that. And then the second thing I say is that we're getting more and more evidence that all inflammatory skin conditions, eczema, psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis, are usually made worse if somebody has a high sugar diet, if they're eating 
um, too many simple carbohydrates rather than mixing them with complex carbs, um, overeating, raised mm. BMI. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. That's a major risk factor for balanitis as well as being overweight. Mm, yeah. And again, because of moisture trapping, change in the bugs that live in the area. Yeah, so um, I'll tell them again about the some general lifestyle measures, reducing alcohol, not smoking, um, foregoing, adding sugar to things. But my general clinical experience has been, unfortunately, even if all of these measures are um, followed to the letter, mm. it's not enough to confer significant enough relief of their symptoms that they can get away without having to use the shampoos and the creams and the other lifestyle sure. changes. So I say it's definitely part of your treatment and it will reap you a yield and a benefit greater in other parts of your life yeah. being height weight appropriate like exercising avoiding sugar you know the the net gain from not becoming diabetes diabetic oh, from not having ischemic heart disease so i definitely encourage guys and i talk about it in the consult but from a just straightforward what's going to make my balanitis better tomorrow doctor kind of view i have to be honest with them i don't think it's going to be you know foregoing sugar in their tea that yeah, gets that sorts their balanitis no. yeah no okay that's great yes and so psoriasis when someone has psoriasis in other places in their body they don't necessarily have it on their penis obviously 100 yeah and you can can you have psoriasis just on your penis and not anywhere else in your body yes so this is that third group i was talking about okay. so we've done the peep things that aren't wrong just genetic or anatomical variations yeah then we did this a uh, um balanitis group mm -hmm. most of which are sort of irritant balanitis, seborrheic balanitis. And then my third group are people that have normal, in inverted commas, as in non-particularly genital skin disorders that happen to affect their penis. Mm -hmm. And the two most common ones are, are atopic dermatitis, also called eczema, and psoriasis. Mm -hmm. And um, before I answer your question, if it's okay, I'll just, can I just Definitely. say what psoriasis is? Because sure. I find a lot of people Good use idea. the word their whole life, and they may have even lived with the disease their whole life, and they're still not sure what it is. Mm. So... Psoriasis is a skin condition that's characterized usually by red, scaly patches of skin. Mm -hmm. And it occurs because the body stops recognizing the skin as itself and attacks it. So it's, mm -hmm. it's autoimmune. The body's attacking the skin. And in order to... The, the response the skin has to that attack is actually to start making much many more skin cells much more quickly mm -hmm. and normally it would take a long time for skin cells to get from the deep layer of the skin to the surface of the skin and that journey ages them and by the time they get to the surface they're old and flat and dead mm -hmm. but if they're being created at a rate 10 20 30 times quicker than they should be by the time they get to the surface they are still juvenile and immature and they're juicy and beefy and red and scaly oh. and that's what it is so it's not an infection, it's not contagious, and it's usually genetic. It's a very common um, genetic uh, um, disease. And um, the, just like I mentioned before, those, that just carrying the genes doesn't mean that you'll necessarily manifest it. So mm. some people might get a strep throat and boom. They never had psoriasis the day before and they do today. They might have a divorce or bankruptcy, boom, they get the psoriasis. Yeah. They might have so something or they might sprain their ankle and take loads of ibuprofen and then suddenly they get psoriasis. Mm -hmm. So that's what psoriasis is. And the most common form presents as the scaly, red, well-demarcated patches on the elbows, the backs of the elbows, the fronts of the knees, mm -hmm. and little like um, patches and plaques on the body. Yeah. And when it's in that form, it's very easily recognized by almost everybody. 
but there are a few subsets where it presents slightly differently that often get missed, and the penny doesn't drop because they, they don't appear how people think psoriasis mm -hmm. should appear. So, yeah. for example, there's a, a version that it can affect the palms and the soles that mm -hmm. creates multiple small pustules. And so people mm. think, well, that doesn't look like psoriasis, but it is. And there is a form that occurs in the creases of the body. And because of the moisture and the friction there, it doesn't have any scale. So you get a perfect red outline that's juicy, thick skin, but it's actually shiny and has no scale. And then mm. we call that inverse psoriasis because okay. it's sort of the opposite to where you'd expect it. Or they call it flexural psoriasis, i.e. it's occurring in the folds of the body, yeah. under the breasts. In the, uh, and if I had a, a dollar for every time, you know, flexural psoriasis under the breasts or in the groin was being treated as a yeast or fungal infection, I'd be rich. <laughs> um, yeah, but the difference okay. is that, you know, for a dermatologist, it's easy to tell the difference. The fungus will usually give you a leading edge. There'll be some normal skin in the middle. It's a bit more scaly. It's not so. Mm. So that for uh, it's easy. And we also might see other changes of psoriasis, like nail changes, joint changes, which is why a poor man comes to see me about a rash on his penis. And I'm looking at his fingernails <laughs> and his toenails and his belly button and his butt crack and his hair. And this because I'm looking for clues because penile dermatoses, rashes on the penis are tricky mm. in that many of them just look like a red patch. Yeah. And even if you're a really skilled dermatologist, just a red patch on the penis really could be psoriasis, eczema, allergy. So I have to often look outside of the penis to help clinch my diagnosis. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, so this inverse type, this inside out type, this uh, fold type is the type that you get on the penis. Okay. So instead of the, and then we refer to it as genital psoriasis, which mm -hmm. is just a subset of flexural. Um, and then instead of these, scaly thick patches you end up with these red patches that may or may not be a bit itchy and may or may not be a bit tender mm. um, and it's just so often missed and that is again one of my most satisfying diagnoses when I, I see a gentleman who's had this persistent lesion it's affecting him psychosexually it's affecting his confidence um, he's had three years worth of antifungal treatment that it hasn't worked. worked yeah and it's because it's psoriasis and the moment then I explain to him exactly what I've just explained to you I can see this light bulb that okay I totally get it now and then if you look really carefully, almost always there is some other feature of psoriasis on their body. So mm. they might have little pits in their nails that they just thought were normal. Yeah. They might have really thick scale on the inside of their ear that they thought there was that was normal. Yeah. They might have a swollen finger. And it's actually because psoriasis, one in five people, it also affects their joints. Yeah. In the same way that the body is attacking the skin, it can affect the lining of the joints. And again, that was misdiagnosed. And suddenly all the pieces of the jigsaw come together. Yeah, okay. So that's really satisfying for me. So what is the treatment then? So um, the treatment is I tell them all the stuff I already told them, because yep. um, especially if they're uncircumcised, I want to um, eradicate any trigger that's going to be upsetting the skin because yep. I know that's going to keep perpetuating the psoriasis, even though that's not the primary cause. Mm -hmm. And then if it's genital only psoriasis, we can usually manage it with creams, mm -hmm. um, which may be a steroid short term or that group of non-steroidal drugs that I mentioned earlier. We also sometimes actually use vitamin D creams, vitamin oh, D analogs, really? because okay. they sort of trick cells and stop this very fast turnover. Yeah. But they can be a bit irritating, excuse me, down there. So it's just about trying to find the right cream, which is usually the, um, the treatment that solves it. Plus, as I mentioned, it can often overlap with yeast infection. So yeah. often trying to decrease that. So um, antifungal shampoos um, will be a big part. 
And sometimes um, if it's really bad, so if they've got really extensive disease, it's really f- causing splits in the skin, it's really, and I'm not managing to bring it under control with um, creams and lifestyle measures alone, we do actually have to give them what's known as systemic medication, mm-hmm. which means medication that is um, either eaten, uh, either swallowed or injected yeah. to, to fix the psoriasis from the inside out. Mm-hmm. So to block this inflammatory pathway where the white cells just keep attacking the skin yeah. um, or to slow over the rate that cells, skin cells are made. Yeah, um, okay. And there's a few drugs in that, uh, f- in that group that we use, but like some of the common ones are things like methotrexate, acetretin, um, or some of the newer drugs, which are called biologics, yeah. um, which are drugs like rizinkizumab or um, gazolcumab. And sometimes we have to do that. The difficulty comes, though, where somebody, if they have a, a relatively low surface of their body affected, that then has to have, they, many men struggle with the idea of taking a medication regularly for that, that would then requires blood monitoring or may have side effects. And, mm. and then the, and depending on where you live, there's usually for the newer drugs, which are generally cleaner and generally safer, the injectable biologics, mm. because of the physical cost attached to them, the mm. government will often set a minimum bar of severity that must be reached in order to qualify for it. Okay. And so many men, unfortunately, just won't meet that bar depending on where they live. Yeah, okay. Yep, those are the... But there's millions of things. The the take-home message from that, everyone listening at home, is that you don't need to know all the treatments. You just need to know there's loads of treatments there. Yeah, but you don't have to put up with this. Correct, exactly. And whilst... And I again, I always say that good news, good news, bad news. I say that a lot in my derm clinic Mm. because a lot of these skin conditions are fixed. I say, I know what's wrong with you. I can make you much better, but I can't cure you. Mm. Um, And that's usually enough for people. It's usually my thing with erection problems. It's like, (laughs) I can't fix them all, but I can always find a workaround. Nice, nice. You know, like you can usually find a way. Yeah. Yeah. So is it very often, because one of the things that I'll see when guys have these kind of problems, they'll come in and go, oh, can you just refer me to a urologist to get a circumcision? Because then the problem will be gone. Yes, that is a wonderful topic. Um, So there is some truth in what they are saying. Mm -hmm. So for that group that I was discussing with the sort of uncircumcised man where it's a mixture of friction and irritation and Mm -hmm. yeast, um, and for some of the dermatoses that are specific for the penis, we didn't get to that fourth group yet, mm. um, but some of them, uh, circumcision is curative. And okay. that's a statement of fact. Yeah. That being said, I tell them just to park it on the side for a moment, because although a relatively safe and straightforward procedure and tolerated by many people, for a large number of people, circumcision in adulthood can be attached with significant um, psychological problems mm. and psychosexual problems. They almost sort of have to re- learn how to use their penis. Mm. They may be hypersensitive for ages. They might find it cosmetically displeasing or feel that it was a form of mutilation to their penis. Mm. Um, so it depends. So I, I say to them, I just gently remind them that you can put that on standby because most of the time when they come to me, they haven't actually had a good crack at tr- trying some of the treatments that we've been discussing for however long we've been together. Mm. So what I say to them is, would you like to just hold off the referral? We try these measures first. If we're not able to bring your symptoms to a, a, um, a acceptable level, then we'll refer you. And sometimes they say, yes, I didn't know there were any other options. Mm. Or they'll say, no, I'm so fed up. I really do. And then I say, that's fine. But then I <laughs> still a bit cheeky. And what I'll do is I'll do the referral and I'll still ask them to do those measures whilst they're waiting to see their urologist. Yeah, because it's going to take and a couple of months. Correct. And many of them, it works. And then they're like, oh, I don't need to get circumcised now. Mm. But it is true 
And it harks back to the very first thing I said, that there's a big difference in the microbiome that live on the skin and the moisture levels and the of a circumcised versus an uncircumcised man. And the uncircumcised penis just doesn't have to deal with a lot of this rubbish. No. Um, so they're not wrong when they say that most of the time it is curative. It's interesting because I saw a guy last year actually who was desperately wanted to have a circumcision for this problem. Yep. And um, he he actually did have it under control with kind of, you know, these sort of measures, these yep. more conservative measures, but he was like, I'm just sick of having to worry about it and I yes. just want a circumcision. He really regretted having a circumcision because yeah. his sexual pleasure when he masturbated wasn't the same yep. because he was so used to having that foreskin going over and over his glands and afterwards he was like, oh, I, I really didn't think about this yeah. before and and I think it's sometimes we're so focused on making something go away yeah. that we just 100%. don't think about the side. And it's a bit like when I said I work four days a week in a derm clinic, one day a week in a, in a cosmetic clinic. I, I make no value judgment of people. Adults, mm. you know, they are autonomous individuals. So I don't actually um, recommend for or against or try to sway anyone mm. to have or not have a foreskin. Mm. And then I joke, I'm like, I'm not particularly attached to your foreskin either way. It doesn't <laughs> affect my life. Yeah. But I just gently remind them that whilst it, it is likely to be curative, just because it's likely to be cured doesn't mean that that has to be our treatment option. No. And then I just gently want to remind them of that fact for the reasons that you said, that any you know surgical procedure will have consequences. Mm. Um, but still, ultimately, it's their decision. And I would say only a minority of my patients end up going on to um, require circumcision. Okay, that's great. And then now we need to talk about the fourth group that we yes. haven't talked about. So penis-specific things. So STIs and rashes that really are predominantly um, penile, penis. yeah, penile problems, and we don't tend to see them so much elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Oh, just before we move on about the circumcision. Yes, it's not gonna. If you have psoriasis or atopic dermatitis or another rash elsewhere in your body, it's not going to cure that. But <laughs> it may well make your penile symptoms better. Yes. Yeah, but yeah. I can't make you stop having psoriasis. So I, again, I have that discussion with people. So I, for in that context, I definitely wouldn't recommend it yeah. if the patient has. If their predominant problem is eczema or psoriasis, I'd rather bring their eczema and psoriasis under control. Everywhere else, and yeah. then that'll yeah. help as well. But yeah. if it's the sort of friction, yeasty, balanitis, chronic, low grade, then yeah. Um, yeah. And one time we definitely do recommend it is like you were mentioning, if they're so frequent and regular episodes of severe balanitis that it's actually causing scarring of tissue, Mm. that would be an indication to circumcise, especially because it can permanently alter the shape of the um, urethral meatus, the the end of the urethra where, and then you can get blockages, you can get backflow of urine. So sometimes we would recommend it, but most men don't fall in that category where their balanitis has been bad enough or recurrent enough that it's deforming to their penis or yeah. scarring to the penis. Yeah. I recently saw a man who um, was due to, was having his prostate removed and he'd had such bad balanitis, and I can never say that properly, that it was so scarred we could barely retract his foreskin. Yeah. And he hadn't been sexually active for quite some time and he, was, he came to see me pre-op just for yeah. education and... He was like, I'm just worried. I've never really worried about this, but now I'm worried. Yes. How's that going to work? I was like, oh, yeah, like, and we you need can to imagine. So, if you that. have a, if your foreskin is now so inflamed or so scarred mm. that it is non retractile, it is going to be impossible for that man to achieve good hygiene yes. in, the, in the way that we described earlier. Mm. So, that's another reason why um, usually they will proceed to um, circumcision in those contexts. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it starts affecting the plumbing and the outflow of the urine. Mm. Um, they can't keep it clean. They can't. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and also, it can affect sexual functioning mm. because without that movement of the, the foreskin or the preface 
backwards. They may not be able to have a, a painless normal erection either. No, so, that's yeah. right. Yeah. But just to reassure everyone at home, these are the minority of people. Very. Yeah. yeah. M- most people don't don't need it. I'm looking so at like ten penises every day, yeah, and I've yeah. seen that once yes. in the last we five years. We see a lot years. of penises. <laughs> so for us, this is common. But this at home, normal. yeah. Um, although no, you may also see a lot of penises. In <laughs> That's true. We don't know what everyone <laughs> no else is judgment. doing. Yeah. So, so um, the fourth group. Fourth group. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, so those STIs and penis-specific rashes. So sometimes people are worried they have an STI, and they're right. Right. They do. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. um, yeah. And a lot of these are being treated in primary care. I so was going to say, would many of them get to you? Because the GPs would check for that. I Correct. Yeah. And yeah. GPs are usually pretty good. It depends on what country you're in. But in Australia, a lot of sexual health, uh, the majority of sexual health is done in primary care. Yeah. So a lot of the that is being taken out of the equation anyways. When they end up in the dermatologist's office, it's usually because it's a slightly unusual presentation of an STI. Okay. So, for example, herpes, which is genital herpes, so mm. HSV2, um, it's usually HSV2, traditionally presents with these sort of small crop of tiny bubbles and blisters that are sore, and it's a bit tingling before the blisters come on, and then and the patient knows and the doctor knows, and um, but occasionally they can present without the blistering. Or the blistering can be so superficial that the top of the blister is de-roofed and comes off before the patient seen the blister, and it just leaves a very shallow loss of tissue on the top that we call an erosion. Mm-hmm. Or it's occurring in an area on the penis that's a bit more unusual, or it might be on the scrotum, so people don't recognize. So those, so I do see STIs, but they tend to be the slightly more nuanced ones. Yeah. Or they're genital warts, that, and warts are funny. They're like... Um, like a school portrait, like in a really like like United Colors of Benetton, <laughs> they can have like all different kinds of appearances. Right. So some can be quite flat, mm-hmm. some can be dome shaped, some can be skin colored, some can be darker, some can be lighter, some can look like little projections. And so when you see the more classic sort of warty, rough, stuck on, blue tacky type warts, I think those get picked up quite easily. Yeah. Um, but some of the more subtle or unusual looking warts can um, can sometimes get missed. Yeah. There's another wart-like viral um, uh, lesion that can occur called molluscum contagiosum. Yes, yep. That in so normal genital warts, so herpes is caused by um, herpes simplex virus, mm-hmm. and then genital warts are caused by human papilloma virus, which is HPV. Um, but molluscum contagiosum, which are these small flesh-colored tiny bumps on the skin that look a bit gelatinous, like if mm. you squeeze them, goops comes out. And, and they're also does. smooth rather yes, than kind of they're like... they're not rough and nice. hard and horny. So <laughs> <it's> <laughs> yeah, not they're not horny. Um, yeah, those are caused by a pox virus, actually. Yeah. And in childhood, they're non-sexually acquired and they're just from close contact. Mm. So toddlers and young children and school-age children will often get crops of these on the sides of their face or their mm. torso where they've been rubbing and touching. But in adulthood, they're usually sexually acquired. So we'll see a concentration of them on the abdomen or the inner groin or the genitals because either areas where you usually get the most skin-to-skin contact and then how do you treat those so i know like in children i've seen a lot of them and we don't treat them because they're self-limiting do you do the same with yeah no we tend to treat them in adults because usually they want to resume normal sexual relations they're they're annoyed they don't like the the appearance of them Mm. so um there's a few different treatments and you either do it physically by trying to the way all viruses work, and the reason viruses are so clever, is that they evade the immune system. Mm. So they hijack cells and then get cloaked. So all our treatments, be them, be they creams and gels or something scrapey or burny, mm. all we're trying to do is release some of that virus to decloak it so the immune system can be rid of it. Uh-huh. And so we can do that either, f- either physically by popping them, scraping them out, 
um, uh, making them rupture with heat or with ice, or we can chemically try to decloak them with creams and gels that wake up the immune system in the area. So these are drugs like imiquimod, which is sold as Aldara. Aldara, yeah. Um, yeah, or just inflammatory ones like Moludab, which is um, it's either sodium or... It's a hydrogen peroxide, basically. So it's an inflammatory one. We might use liquid nitrogen to burst them. We might um, another chemical agent would be podophyllotoxin, or s- which is sold as wortocon in a lot yeah. of countries. So, so these are the sort of treatments that we would use. But I always say to them, more important than treating your molluscum is to also do an STI screen. Yeah. Um, because um, unfortunately, STIs often hunt in packs. Yes. So if you have one, um, there's a good chance of other. So I'll always do a chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, a full full shebang with that as well. So that brings me to a question that I really wanted to ask you. If you have one of these, ki- and not specifically the ones that we know are an STI, but if you have any of these other kind of issues that are on your penis, these skin issues, do you need to tell your partners or not? Yeah, so that's a really elegant and nuanced question. And the answer is yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you had eczema affecting your penis or psoriasis affecting your penis, has been diagnosed and you've been treated... I would say probably it's your prerogative because mm. the person stands to come to no harm from you having psoriasis on your penis. Yes. In real life, you probably are going to have a conversa- have to have a conversation because most people don't have sex in the dark and they see their <laughs> partner's genitals. Yeah. And they'll be like, what is that red mark on your penis? So most people end up having that conversation anyways. When you get to um, infections like HPV mm. and HSV and molluscum, it is a teeny bit more nuanced. Because they're not, um, uh, it's not like chlamydia or gonorrhea where there's an immediate uh, transmission and where you can be cured of them with antibiotics and it's a finite period in time and it's gone. Mm. Um, then you don't need to tell somebody 10 years ago I had gonorrhea because it's fully treated and it's gone. They're, they don't stand to acquire gonorrhea or chlamydia from you once you've been treated and retested. Viruses, though, unfortunately, are much more clever than bacteria and they live with us forever. Mm. That's why, you know, when you get chicken pox as a kid, it can come back as shingles when you're an adult because mm. the, the, some of the virus found a little nerve and lived there. When we're all inoculated with oral herpes in childhood, so we get like sort of inflamed gums and teeth from sharing cutlery or kissing adults, then it keeps coming back in later life as a cold sore. Mm. And that's usually HSV1. Um, so viruses are just smart and they live with us forever. And it's the same, unfortunately, with herpes virus and with HPV. So what I say to patients and what the current guidelines are is that um, you should. And again, what is should in inverted commas? But we would recommend that you have a conversation with any new sexual partner when it comes time to have sex or ideally before. So not in the moment, but if you're vaguely <laughs> in that ballpark <laughs> of your a relationship where you think the next stage is probably going to be sex mm. to have and make it not just about that one thing speak generally so that's what i tell patients i say i think it's difficult to just blurt out by the way i've got hsv by the way i've got hpv so just say i was wondering if we could have a conversation about sexual health and you know about contraception and about if that's relevant mm. um, and then i say then i would segue into it and say just so you're aware um, i have had in the past um, episodes of HSV as in I've had genital herpes or I've had warts um, they're currently and then you fill in what's appropriate you say I'm currently asymptomatic and have been for X, Y or Z I'm currently not on treatment or I'm on prophylactic treatment for HSV and then how do you feel about that is that gonna or what should we and that sort of invites that's what you would do that's how you have an autonomous respectful safe conversation mm. with somebody and do you know most people then will say oh that's okay I've had it too or yeah. I don't mind because you don't you don't whereas if you deny somebody the right to have that conversation you are denying them 
autonomy. And whilst most adults will have already, by the time they come and have sex with you, they probably already have been exposed to HSV and HPV. Yeah, that's right. You don't know that, actually. And they may not be. And you may be the one who then uh, causes that transmission. So that that's how I tell patients to approach it. And also, if it ends up a long-term relationship, yes, and it's then a you really have a flare. difficult conversation to have later. 100%. Because then yeah. they were like, have you cheated on me? And mm. um, Because their assumption is that they've slept out, they've had a sexual interaction outside of the relationship. Whereas actually, it was just dormant for years. And then they had a cold or broke their leg or something and the immune system got a bit distracted for one second and pff, the um, the HSV came back. I had so an interesting um, case uh, probably early on in the whole COVID thing where a married couple who neither of them had been outside their marriage, one of them when they got COVID um, got genital um, herpes yeah. and they had probably had a very tiny outbreak many years before yeah. that never was diagnosed. They never thought anything of. Yes. And it wasn't until years later when they were really run down and they got COVID and they were unwell that this came out. Yeah. And then there was all sorts of difficult conversations between that couple yeah. because we had to like go through yeah. how that worked. And I also reassure patients and I say, I know it's an uncomfortable conversation. I don't pretend that it's not going to be one, but mm. that doesn't mean that it's not a conversation that needs to happen. Mm. Um, and then I'll give pr written leaflets because sometimes it's hard, even if they leave with a really clear understanding of what I've said, that vocabulary just sort of runs away. Or in that moment, mm. if there's a scaffolding they can have to direct the conversation, or I say, did you want to come back with your partner? Yeah. And I can have the conversation with them as well. And we can have, a, I was about to say a three-way, but that's not what I meant. <laughs> right, we can have a, a discussion together. So there's yeah. lots of ways of dealing with it. But in, a, in short answer to your question, I do think it's a conversation that should be had. Yeah. Um, and that partners should be um, should be informed. Mm. Yeah. Right. That's my thingy. And then, um, yeah, that's the, out of that fourth group, the mm. STIs. Then there are some dermatoses which really do just occur on the penis predominantly. Oh, yes. And out of that group, probably the most common one that I encounter is a, uh, is a, a dermatosis called lichen sclerosis, mm -hmm. um, which is another one where the body gets a bit angry, attacks itself. Uh, it is only really, I've only ever seen it in circumcised men. I've never seen it in an uncircumcised, um, sorry, it's only seen in um, uncircumcised men. Mm -hmm. I've never seen lichen uh, sclerosis in a circumcised mm. man. I see it in I, I see it on vulvas quite often. Yeah, as so well. it's much more common in yeah. women than in men. Yeah, and in women it often affects the sort of perianal skin as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it can do in men, and same actually. Well, if we go back to warts, um, many men, even if they've had no um, sexual activity in their anus, they just get self inoculated, and they may well have warts down. Oh, okay. at, uh, yeah, the anal. That's very common. Right. So that's another reason why, if you come to my clinic with penile symptoms and I look at your butt. Um, it's that, not that you're a weirdo. Yeah, 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 that's, it's just yeah, you're yeah, actually that's, doing yeah. and a due diligence. Yep, and we can treat <laughs> it at the same time. But yeah, so if somebody has uh, often low-grade inflammation or an injury or something can trigger this autoimmune uh, condition where the body attacks the skin again, um, we also think it may be implicated with what bacteria and viruses and um, yeast live on the skin mm -hmm. so we're not totally sure what the exact causes but we know what some of the triggers are yeah. for this lichen sclerosis and then what ends up happening is as a result of this immune attack on the skin normal skin is replaced with um scar-like tissue mm. so you get a mixture of a gentleman who's got some bruised areas some scarred areas some um, eroded or ulcerated areas in the background of a lot of inflammation and it usually just affects the glands penis in a in an uncircumcised man and that one we do have to be quite proactive mm. in treating 
because that degree of inflammation, unfortunately, can quite quickly cause irreversible structural change. So for a woman, that may mean that the vagina closes, the, la- the labia fuse, the clitoris gets um, embedded down. Yeah, it disappears. Exactly. Also, the tissues just become much more sensitive. Sex becomes difficult. And it's mm. the same for a man. Um, the foreskin can fuse shut. It can become bedded down or um, adherent to the, um, the, uh, the corona yeah. or the shaft of the penis. And really, all of this can be totally preventable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another reason. Yeah. So... I've never seen it. I've seen it a lot in women, yep. but I've never seen it in a man. What does it present like? Does it have that kind of white sort of shiny yeah, so look? It depends on what stage, unfortunately, which is another reason that like psoriasis, I often find lichen sclerosis can be misdiagnosed. Yeah. So in the early stages, it just looks like red, angry skin. Mm-hmm. Then in the middle stages, it may look like some, like I said, some some bruising because of vessels damaged to blood vessels there might be some areas where the very top of the skin has come off so they look a bit eroded Mm -hmm. and then in the later stages you start to get shininess as you lose some Mm. of that healthy dermal tissue and normal tissue might be replaced with scarring so then you might end up with white lines Mm. um, or with a whitish appearance to the head of the penis and then you might end up with the structural change that i described where there's small bridges of tissue that are anchoring down the corona to the shaft mm-hmm. or a ring of um, scar-like tissue at the very tip of the foreskin, which means that it can no longer be retracted. Or when it's retracted, um, it can only be partially done so or less than the person could do previously. So those mm-hmm. are the sort of things. So red areas, ulcerated areas, bruises, white patches, and then um, uh, banding or strictures. And the treatment steroid cream? Yeah, so in the early stages, we can often attenuate this with, I keep going back to that same thing, it's very similar for everything, hygiene measures, washing measures, um, avoiding excessive friction, using, um, uh, so all those lifestyle measures, mm. uh, soap-free washes, then definitely, and we need we don't just need steroids, we need potent steroids. Mm. We need really strong steroids because it's a really strong inflammatory response, so stronger steroids than we use, for example, for eczema or um, psoriasis Mm because we just want to shut it down and also because we know the stakes are high. We want to shut down the inflammation before there's any permanent architectural or structural change to the genitalia Um, and nine times out of ten that will fix it. Um, If that doesn't, in women it's a bit more complex Mm. uh, and then they may need systemic medication, special creams or gels, etc. But in men then they probably would uh, would just proceed to circumcision, which we know is very likely to be um, curative for them. So that would be one of the occasions where um, we would consider... uh, circumcision, uh, we would recommend it quite early quite on early if it's not responding to normal treatment mm-hmm. and they're starting to show those structural changes, mm-hmm. then we know that we could probably bring it under control more easily with circumcision. So my biggest takeaway that I'm hearing from all of this is we need to make sure that we our hygiene is is good but also not overzealous and soap, yep. and soap free. You want that middle ground, yep. soap free, good yep. regular hygiene without being over much and not ignoring it. Yeah, so everything in moderation. And then if we do notice a change to the skin in our genitals, yep. we just need to go and get someone to look at it. Yeah, and again, most adults are pretty good at this. So what I would say is in your mind, you just break it into is this mild, moderate or really bad. Yeah. And if it is just that low grade, little bit red, little bit sore, you've had it before, it's come and gone, then I would do all those things that I suggested mm-hmm. first. It's very reasonable to mm. defer going straight to the doctor. If you think, well, I never used to urinate with a partially retracted foreskin and I never used to go soap free and I never used to dry my foot. So and I can buy a over the counter uh, anti yeast cream mm. with a bit of and I'll just try it for a week or two. 
And if you're like, wow, I listen to this podcast and I'm and everything's great, mm -hmm. then I'd say you probably got this. Whereas if you try those measures and it gets to two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and it's not improved, I would definitely see the doctor. Yeah. But for anything past that point of mild, little bit of irritation, little bit of redness, had it before, anything else, lumps, bumps, uh, ulcers, um, pain, uh, bad rash, big redness, new redness, mm -hmm. I would definitely seek out a consult immediately. But that, and that's again, li people listening at home, that's already going to be the minority of the people listening. Yeah. The majority are either going to have no problems at all, or they'll be in that first group where it's just occasional, a little bit irritating, and they're like, oh, actually, I do get dandruff as well. Let me try doing what this guy says. But anything other than that, mm. yeah, um, I would definitely see a doctor. And the other takeaway, I think, is if you've got sons or grandsons, teach them how to look after their penis properly. Yeah, definitely. And I'd also say that then um, it's worth mentioning, and this is another problem I see, is that in prepubescent children, because the parents want to do good and want the child to be clean, they keep trying to retract the foreskin. So in a two, three, four, five-year-old, the penis, the foreskin is not going to be retractile. Yeah, good point. They are not making the types of oils and secretions and they're not engaging in any sexual activity that means that they even need for that cleaning to occur around underneath the foreskin. Mm. So normal hygiene for a toddler, child, small child, anyone with a non-retractile foreskin in you know, prepubescent, you do not need to pull it back. Mm -hmm. In adulthood, naturally, it obviously does retract because that's how um, sex is possible and it will naturally happen at the age when erections usually start anyways because the body's synchronized like that. Yeah. And that's when you do all the measures that I said. This whole talk was only about adults, not about children. They're quite sure. a separate, yeah, kettle so of fish. But they, they can already have that conversation, though, around mm. puberty, yeah. about hygiene, about what to look out for, about what soaps to use, about keeping dry, about how to urinate. It, that doesn't have to, yeah, that can happen mm. uh, at that so age. So with... Like what age roughly, because, you know, let's face it, your, your son's probably not going to say, hey, I've started waking up yes, with yes, erections, yep. I don't want to tell you. So what age roughly do you think that a parent or a grandparent should start to say, hey, make sure you pull your foreskin back and wash underneath um, it? That's a difficult question to answer, but um, most foreskins start becoming retractile around the seven, eight years okay. age group, right up until about 12. Sure. Um, so just in the same way you would teach kids when they're little to wipe from front to back yep. and etc then there's no need to tell a three-year-old about no. retracting their foreskin but when they start getting to seven and eight just in the same way in other areas of grooming you'd be they, as they become more and more independent with their grooming and hygiene you're teaching them i think that's a reasonable yeah. um time to have that conversation um mm. yeah i remember um teaching my son when he was little about this and hopefully he doesn't listen because he'll have a fit <laughs> he'll be like mom why he's, <laughs> he's like 25 now he's probably used to be embarrassing yeah. him and his name is kevin <laughs> and he lives in yeah. <laughs> i remember like teaching him about it you know you've got to pull your foreskin back and wash underneath it and then one day he came down and he was like mom i did what you told me and it's like my head's purple down there and i was like oh, oh that doesn't didn't put it back that doesn't sound good we better have a look anyway it was so I had to take him yeah. to the emergency department because I wasn't yeah. quite sure what to do about it. And he silly, he thought that, you know, maybe he thought I couldn't hear when I was on the other side of the curtain. He was telling the doctor how mum brought me in because she's worried about the head of my penis because it's gone purple. And she said it's not normal and she's seen a lot of penises. <laughs> and it was kind of embarrassing because the doctor yeah. was like, oh, has she? What's been going on? So, yeah. yeah. So I'm sure you've covered that in lots of, <laughs> lots of previous episodes. But yeah, what you're describing is a, a paraphimosis yes. where the foreskin is pulled back and then can't go back to its old position mm. and strangulates the head of the penis, which is another reason why 
um, we shouldn't be forcing traumatizing no. foreskins that just don't go back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's not. Yeah, yeah, not good. Well, this has been amazing. I've learned heaps, and so I'm Thank sure you. that I've learned a lot. So I'm very sure that our listeners would have learned even more. Is there anything we haven't covered? I was thinking in the show notes, I will put you know your like general tips yes. of like how to look Please after do. your yeah. penis. I thought that would be really great. So, um. um Anything else? Yeah, just that there's a couple good uh, resources I'd like to direct people to. Sure. Uh, So there's a really nice website called DermNet NZ, as in New Zealand. And so whatever diagnosis you want to Google, four disc spots, pearly papules of the penis, uh, balanitis, seborrheic dermatitis. We've talked about lots of things today. If you put that word in Google and then Dermnet NZ, it's a really um, elegant website. It's written by doctors, very trustworthy information. There's also one called Patient UK mm-hmm. that's very nice. So if you put in Google Patient UK leaflet and then whatever we've discussed, and they actually have two sets of leaflets. One are written for doctors and one are written for patients. Oh, great. And if you're really, really interested in things, you can even read the the doctor one because it's written for non-specialists in that sure. area to also okay. understand it. Um, so that's one and extra bit. And I've got bit. Yep. these links. Um, ah, yes, so nice. I thought I would put them all in the show notes too so 100%. people can go straight to them. Yep. And then the other tip I'd say is I would go to the supermarket and actually it's worthwhile f- testing out a few different products first. So a few soap-free washes, a few moisturizers, mm-hmm. and then just finding which is your favorite. Same with the antifungal shampoo. And then you have it for life. So take that time at the beginning to play around. Um, take the time to play around. <laughs> They're all like sexual <laughs> puns, aren't they? But yeah, to experiment. Oh, that sounds terrible too. Yeah, that's but usually the kind just, of homework uh, I give people. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, it's worth doing it at the beginning and finding that product that suits you yeah. and carrying it forward. And if you go to a dermatologist's rooms, they'll often have samples for you. But there's no reason why you just can't buy some of them and, um, try, and them try them. Yeah. And um, yeah, keep in touch. Uh, I'm on social media, not that much, but it's DR. Mm-hmm. A-H-M-E-D K-A-Z-M-I yep. So Dr. Ahmed Kazmi And I'm and definitely going to put that in yeah, the show notes I too because then I, on your social media you tell people when you're performing Yeah, yeah. Don't so, you? so most, most of it is that. comedy stuff so if you want to come see me um, I sometimes post health tips and things I don't give clinical advice there but you might want to just uh, follow or maybe see one of my shows or yeah, yeah. Um, pick yeah. up some health tips Yeah, And welcome. it's definitely worth seeing your shows they're very oh, entertaining Thank you so thanks so much for coming. Yeah, no, I thank really you for oh, me. another pun. Terrible. Yeah. Thank you for attending the podcast today. We really appreciate that. <laughs> oh, that does that happen at the end of every? Not podcast? usually. No, okay. but something inappropriate yeah, always well, happens at some stage. I I am really glad I came as well. Yeah, it was lovely. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so yeah, all right, guys. Thanks Great. for um, yeah having this moment with me. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye. Tell you about a boy who lives inside me. He's been there all of my life. Hi, I'm Melissa, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week. Just a reminder if you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer, I've built a penile rehabilitation program just for you. It's an online program packed with information, exercises and advice along with proven strategies that will get your penis back in working order as quickly as possible in about 15 minutes a day. If you like the sound of that, then please head over to penilerehabilitationprogram.com and you can start straight away or there's a link from the RS Health website. We would also love you to review and subscribe and share this podcast so we can help more men. 
Links to Instagram and Facebook are in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. So spread the word that help is available. All the best for now. Bye. I've got a boy of my own now It fills me with pride To see him growing so fast into a man 